I will build my life upon your love. It is a firm foundation. Those words really summarize what we've been talking about last week and this week. Uh, before we start the next uh, teaching through the book of, of, a, of the Bible, uh, which you don't know yet and we can't tell you, we'll tell you next week. Uh, we've decided to take a two-week series, and this is the second of that series entitled Yanyo, You Are Not Your Own. And uh, to do that, last week, Monty talked about our identity in Christ in a corporate sense. And this morning, uh, we're going to take a look at our identity in Christ in a personal sense. So let me do a quick review for us of Monty's sermon last week, just to get us caught up. You certainly can watch that online if you missed it. He basically said that every person is created in the very image of God. And in light of that, there are two representations of people, hum humanity created in the image of God. One is male and one is female. Although in 2014, Facebook said there were 56 different representations or genders, probably more now. And then in Genesis 3, when sin entered into the world, the image of God, Monty said, was defaced or marred, but it was not erased. God's image is still printed on humans. And uh, the application, really a takeaway from that, is you and I need to understand that humans, created male and female, in the very image of God, are the capstone or pinnacle or apex of all that God created. I know you love your dog, okay? But your dog ain't human. Therefore, he ain't the capstone of God's creation. All the cat lovers said amen, right? The Bible speaks of two other additional categories of human identity. One is that you are in Adam, and in Adam means that you have not placed your trust in Christ and his shed blood on the cross alone for the forgiveness of your sin. And then the other one is in Christ, where you have placed your trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you've been transferred, Monty said, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light or the kingdom of his beloved son. <clears throat> so this morning, as I said, we want to focus our time on this short but very powerful two-letter phrase, in Christ. Over 80 times in the New Testament, the apostle Paul and other writers speak of this phrase, in Christ or in him. It'd be a great study for you to do, certainly on your own. And as we do this, I want to really take some time for us to unpack why it is so difficult for us to believe, apply, and live out who we are in Christ. I put a quote in your notes by John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, which I think succinctly and clearly states why it's so difficult. <clears throat> he says, the Lord Christ and the world that crucified him are competitors for our hearts. Man, there's no truer statement about this, the struggle we have to live out, believe, and apply who we are in Christ. It, it summarizes, in some sense, what the scriptures say about us, that we are in a spiritual war against the world, flesh, and the devil, and we act like we're at peacetime. We're going to talk about that at the end. Look, I couldn't, I certainly could have named this, this message, or we could have named this series Identity Crisis, <clears throat> because if you've been paying attention 
to your own heart. Meaning, as humans, and I'll unpack this, we're all in an identity crisis. It's a normal part of being human. But secondly, paying attention to the world around us, it is at a high level. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Not only does Facebook say, for example, we have 56 different genders to identify ourselves with, but the world is telling us in many ways, in many forms, and it's always told us that you and I can get our identity, and a synonym for that would be our worth, our value, our significance from things like the color of our skin, what our physical bodies look like, our jobs, our money, our possessions, our success, politics, power, our marital status. I've talked to people who aren't married and they feel like they're nobody because they're not married. Scriptures don't teach that. Pronouns, our intellect, social status, our gifts, our athleticism, sports. Man, I struggled a little bit last night with that Clemson loss, right? It was like, oh, the list is endless. Now, notice that many of these are good things. Example, our intellect. But what happens to your worth and value and significance when you get old and get dementia? What happens when your fine-tuned physique hits 50 and explodes? <laughs> what happens when your beautiful head of flowing locks of hair fall out? I'm your huckleberry. Now, the world would say, and many times our own heart says to us, you have no worth or value. Our identity crisis is putting our ultimate hope and need of security. We need those things of worth, value, significance in these kind of things. <clears throat> so here's what I want to do. I want to take a minute this morning to normalize the struggle. One of the greatest things you can do for your own spiritual growth or the spiritual growth of another person is to normalize the struggle we have with sin instead of hide it, with it never celebrating the sin. Does that make sense? So let's normalize our struggle. <clears throat> we'll do it with two questions. Why do we search compulsively to find our worth, value, and significance? Why is that? And when I say we, I mean everyone. We are on a universal search <clears throat> for somebody and something to give us worth and value. It's <clears throat> it's innate in the human heart, and half of the problem really would be solved if you realize that you are on that search. To say, man, yeah, I, I, I try to get, I try to get worth, value, significance from a lot of things horizontally. That helps us. The, the simple answer <clears throat> is, it's really a part of the consequences of sin entering the world in Genesis three. It has caused us to rebel against God and attempt to find our worth and identity in other things. Second question, <clears throat> why is it so difficult? Man, it's got to be a good question here. Think about this. Why is it so difficult, even as a Christ follower, to find or believe or live out our worth and identity in what God says is true of us. Let me take us quickly to Galatians 5, 17, or 5, 16, and 17. I got it in your notes. You can look it up later. <clears throat> Paul writes, 
But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. At the end of chapter 7, Paul summarizes seven chapters of a dissertation on the sinfulness of all men of all time with these words. I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I want to do. Anybody else relate to that? Yeah, 90% of you nod your head, the other 10% are lying. <laughs> this is the lifelong battle, normalize this, of being transformed to the image of Christ. Before Christ, all you had was flesh. There was no power to obey God. And after the Spirit came into your life, at the very second, the very instant that you trusted Christ, a fight started. There was conflict between your flesh and God's spirit. Now, I want you to notice the words to walk. To walk is not instantaneous change. M many of you have believed either because someone told you that, teaching the Bible, or you're just on your own tapes. Why aren't I different? Why is it so hard? As if spiritual change is instantaneous. And I'm not given a license just to sin and do what you want. But you and I know that's not the case. It is one step at a time. And it's why one of our values here at Fellowship Bible Church is a long <clears throat> obedience in the same <clears throat> direction. So walking in the Spirit, according to Colossians 3.16, is this. To let the Word of Christ, which is the revelation of Christ, through the Holy Spirit, through men, the Scriptures, dwell in you richly. So walking in the Spirit is being saturated with what the Bible says is true and true about who you are in Christ. Walking by the Spirit is simply walking in line with the revelation of the Spirit via the Scriptures. It's so natural. It's like blinking. Any of you ever think, you know, I'm going to blink now. No, you just blink. It is so natural for you and I to find our identity from everything but what God says is true in his word. <clears throat> and here's the encouraging thing. God knows that. Like he knows <clears throat> there is this conflict going on between your flesh okay, and the spirit. And so what he has done is he has given us a way out. The Spirit of God trains you with the Word of God so you sin less, you obey more, and a huge part of that, I'm telling you, is seeing who you are in Christ despite your performance. <clears throat> to sort of get a big picture this morning, I want to do some spiritual math because I'm not really good. I'm a PE major. I'm not good at real math. So to do that, I've given you what I think is two helpful equations. Let's define this before we dig into it. So the first equation is the world's equation for worth or value or significance equals your performance and the opinions of others about you. That's got to feel, ugh. You feel that? Meaning you are not worthwhile. You have no worth, no value, no significance, no identity 
unless you perform well and others think well of you. That's a crazy maker. To jump through the hoops so others will approve of us. And then to be under the crushing and the exhausting and the unrelenting weight to perform at some unattainable standard. Look, most of us rarely, if you're like me, never hit a home run in anything. Much of my life and yours is just keeping our nose above water. It's an illusion. It's impossible. Talk about the pressure and anxiety to achieve your own identity. Now, I want you to know that I totally believe that anxiety is is a real, real issue. Anyone want to nod your head on that? Yeah. No doubt. And sometimes it's chemical. No doubt. But much of our anxiety comes from this. Harold Abrams of the movie Chariots of Fire and the true story of Chariots of Fire was asked by his girlfriend, why do you have to win the gold medal in the 100-yard dash? His response, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. Exactly what Monty said last week. He said, who you are, your identity, excuse me, informs why you exist, your purpose, and why you matter, the meaning of your life, and it then dictates how you navigate all of life, your direction. It's a miserable way to live. So, when your worth and value is measured by the quality of your, you fill in the blank, whatever it is particular to you, or by the fickle opinions of others, I want to tell you there is at least two. There are more, but I want to give you two things it will do. The first one, it will drive you insane. And secondly, it will impede your growth in Christ. Now you may say, how how does it do that? Practically speaking, Jeff, how does it do that? It gives you this sense in your mind and heart that you cannot fail. It drives perfectionism. You want some anxiety? Try to be a perfectionist. There was only one of those. It makes you avoid risk at any cost. The fear of failure will make you just just try to be safe. Look, I, I work with high-level pro athletes, Cincinnati Reds and Bengals, for six years, all entangled in their lives. I can give you 100 examples of fear of failure at the highest level of pro sports by the best in the world. Remember one particular pitcher, relief pitcher, came in the ninth inning, threw a fastball over the plate, a guy hit a home run for the other team to win the game, walked in the locker room after the game. He's sitting in the corner sobbing with his face in his hands, and not one other player would say a word to him. That guy never pitched again in the major leagues. It 
it will make you lie. <clears throat> That's sort of what social media is, just a big lie. <clears throat> How y'all doing? Just look at social media. Got to keep your front up. <clears throat> it will fill you with anxiety. Can take you to depression. It will make you keep secrets. I cannot tell somebody who I really am, what I'm really struggling with. They will think bad of me. Here's what you and I need. We need to get our identity, worth, and value and significance from something, it's the only way to get it, that is received, not achieved. Hello, Miriam Wash. Are you discerning that I need water? You must have that spiritual gift. You know, we just talked about those. I'm glad I could help you out with that. Thank you. <clears throat> Let me say that again. We need to get our identity and worth from something that is received instead of achieved. That's encouraging. Lights come on. And the spiritual equation for that, look in your notes. God's equation for worth and value and significance and our identity is what he declares is true of me and you in Christ. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, in Jesus, the performance and approval pendulum stops. The pride of success or the despair of failure, the likes and dislikes of others are absorbed by grace. We need an identity that can handle all of this and more. And in Christ, we have exactly that and more. <clears throat> so we ask this question, who are you in Christ? So let me unpack this, okay? At the very moment that you and I placed our trust in Christ, think back to that moment that you saw your sin, you had a need of a Savior, and you placed your trust in Christ alone through his shed blood on the cross to forgive you of your sins. At that very moment, boom. Not, not after you performed well, not after you matured in Christ, not after you changed the way you were living, but at that very moment, the Scripture says that the Spirit of the living God, the Holy Spirit, came to indwell each believer, and the fight was on. And at that very moment, the Scripture says over 30 things became true of you instantaneously. Matter of fact, throughout this talk, as I tell you what they are, I'm going to do my hand like that, and you're going to snap. Try it with me. Ready? Just to, just, just to remind you, instantaneous. These are called positional truths. They're not called reality truths because none of us match up. We will when we die and go to heaven. It's called glorification. But right now, they're called positional truths. They're true of you no matter what you think, feel, or perform. So I want to go over six of those this morning. The first one, a new creation. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, 17, or I'll read it. It's in your notes. The passage is, says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Folks, that is a declaration of truth. This Bible verse has been twisted and taught wrongly as much as any Bible verse. I remember hearing it growing up, meaning it got taught in a way that if you come to Christ, it's instantaneous change. Everything becomes new. No, no, no. Who you are in Christ becomes new. You become a new creation. 
Here's what Paul did. Paul, before he came to Christ, he put his trust, his, he got his value, identity, and worth and significance from his resume. If you write down Philippians 3, 4 through 8, you're going to see where Paul lays out his resume. He said he was the best, and then he told folks why he was the best. Is he, is he laid out his resume as a Pharisee, the Pharisee among Pharisees. He reminded me of my oldest son, Josh, when he was four years old, made a snowman in our front yard in Cincinnati, and trying to be an encouraging dad, I said, I said Josh, that's a good job. And I got him on video saying, thank you, Dad, I'm the best. I'm the best with the mostest. You know, he been, look, he said that his whole life. Him and Paul had said the same thing. If anyone has a reason, Paul says, for confidence in the flesh, I have. Look at my resume, my accomplishments. Look what I achieved. So Paul got his identity from that. But then again in 2 Corinthians 5, 16, he says, now though, after a person comes to Christ, we regard no one according to the flesh. As believers, we regard no one according to the things they do and how they do them and their performance and what people think of them. We don't look at Christ's followers based on worldly criteria or their performance and achievements. A new creation says your identity has changed from being in Adam in the domain of darkness, exiled, estranged, desolate, and detached from God, to being in Christ in the kingdom of his beloved son. So here's what I want you to do. When did that happen? Ready? As soon as you came to Christ. Secondly, <clears throat> justified. It's always been one of my <clears throat> favorite biblical words. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, <clears throat> so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Man, maybe my favorite word because it's so rich describing the benefit of our salvation. It means, yes, we're at peace with God because we've placed our trust in Christ and Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins. But it also says we have been given the righteousness of Christ, that when God looks upon us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. That's called a positional truth. When I used to share the gospel or disciple guys with Clemson University athletes, I would literally take a blanket off their bed in their dorm room and I would lay over them as they sat in a chair. And they're like, dude, what are you doing? And I would say that blanket represents the blood of Christ that covers us. And when God looks at you, he sees the blanket, i.e. the righteousness of Christ and not who you are in reality. Folks, that's, that's mind-boggling. Justification not only says you're not guilty, it says you've been declared righteous. Is anyone here righteous in reality? But you have been declared that in Christ. In justification, God has given us a secure worth totally apart from our ability to perform, but a secure worth based on his ability to perform. It also means maybe an easy way to remember it is <clears throat> justification is just as if I've never sinned and just as if I've always done what's right. 
That's how God sees us in Christ. It's an accounting term where you have two ledgers. On one ledger, you have our sins. On the other ledger, you have the righteousness of Christ. And at the moment you come to Christ, great theologians have, or theologians have said, what happens is the great exchange, boom. My sins are laid on Christ and his righteousness is laid upon me. It is the only way you're able to pray and God hear your prayers. It is the only way you have access to the Father. In God's new economy of our identity in Christ, what you do does not determine who you are. Rather, who you are determines what you do. Man, there's so many Christians who are trying to earn favor with God by performing and climbing some ladder, and I'm not trying to give a license to sin at all. Remember what I said? Normalize the struggle with sin, but never celebrate it as if it's okay. We pass immediately, justification says, from a state of condemnation and spiritual death to a state of pardon and eternal certainty. John Calvin said, <clears throat> justification is the main hinge on which salvation turns. Here's some more good news. Our justification before a holy God is final and irreversible. If you're saved, if you've come to Christ, <clears throat> your position in Christ never changes. Is that hard for you to get? Because yeah, nothing else is like that in life, right? You blow it on your job, what do they do? They fire you, right? You blow it in your marriage. You ever walked around your house, married, in the same home, but not speaking to each other? Oh, y'all ain't done that, huh? Just me and Jenna. You go, how you doing? Good. Just keep doing your thing. Yeah. Doesn't do that with God. Ready? Justification? Instantaneously. Third, <clears throat> reconciled. Colossians 1:21 and 22. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is a great mental picture. Part of how we get our identity in Christ and believe it is we have to put it into our imagination. And I'm not talking about, look, I'm not talking about some Disneyland kind of stuff. I'm talking about take the truth of God, put it here, because this is a mental picture, if you would, that we were once enemies of God, and now because of Christ, death on the cross, we are his friends. It explains the relational connection of our salvation. Once living in a state of eternal alienation, and now we live in a state of eternal reconciliation. Reconcile, ready? Happened instantaneously at salvation before you did anything. <clears throat> Propitiated. 1 John 4, 9 through 10. says, in the love of God, in this, the love of God was made manifest among, among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that he might live, we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation says that you and I deserve wrath from a holy God. 
That's what we deserved. And God satisfied his wrath through the shed blood of his son. Propitiation says God no longer punishes us. Now look, I know if your mind is like mine. When you sin, there are those of you who still think God's going to get me. He's going to be punitive in nature. He's going to take me out. He's going to blow me up. Propitiation says he does not punish those who knew him because he punished his son. Discipline? Yes. I've disciplined my kids. You've disciplined your kids. But discipline is, is driven by our great love for them, not to be punitive. One writer said of propitiation, the depth of God's love for us is revealed by the extremity of his actions for us and that this act of propitiation soothes or heals the great hostility of God toward us for our rebellion forever. Propitiation, ready? Regenerated. Titus 3, 3 through 5. I love these verses. <clears throat> For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions. Remember, we had no power to obey. And pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Man, that sounds like the world we live in, doesn't it? But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration simply means to be reborn. It is the objective work of God in the believer's life at the very moment of salvation. That God through Christ brings a person to new life from a state of separation and death in order and in doing so is given a new nature. I don't know if you've ever heard people give illustrations that we were drowning, we were in the ocean, we were in a lake and we were drowning, we were about to go down and God threw us a life raft and we grabbed onto it. You ever heard that describe salvation? That's a lie from the pit. The scripture says we were dead, and dead men don't grab nothing. <laughs> dead women don't grab nothing. We were dead in our sins. God brought us back to life. This is the great answer to human shame. And if you're like the vast majority of people, just humans, we struggle with shame. Shame says, I am what I am. I cannot change. I am hopeless. Shame said, that's the, always, that's the way I've always been. Shame says, the old dog can't learn new tricks. And every one of those shame statements and more are alive from the pit of hell. There is a radical change of the governing disposition of the soul that gives birth to a life that moves in a Godward direction, step by step, along obedience in the same direction. And it is because we were dead and God regenerated us and made us alive. 
And then my last one and probably my most heartfelt one is adopted. Obviously, most of you know we have an adopted daughter. We adopted it six days old. She's 19 now. So I love this. It comes from Galatians 4, 4 through 5, and Ephesians 1 through 5. Let me read Galatians 4 first. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. Then Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Spiritual adoption gives you and I the privilege to be the son and daughter of the living God and that he be our father. It is one of the most precious and practical of all theological terms to have the father love us and welcome us into his family. How different would mine and your lives be if we really, really believe that? And a lot of us can't believe it because we didn't have an earthly father that gave us a glimpse of that. I understand the struggle, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. We're no longer strangers and aliens, but members of the family of God. You know, Jen and I, when we adopted Joel a little over 19 years ago, uh, we took the initiative to adopt her, right? We went through the process we did all the paperwork through the adoption agency. And we went to pick her up that day. What, what did Joelle do in order to be a part of our forever family, to be our daughter? Nothing. Guess what the adoption laws say? We learned this after adopting her. Once you adopt a child physically into your family, you cannot disadopt them. And God says the same thing spiritually. Ready? Adoption. Snap. Two takeaways this morning. First one is become who you are already in Christ. When you and I read the declarations of who we are in Christ in the scriptures, how we need to hear them instead of this dutiful uh, uh, just sort of fluffy stuff or this wave of condemnation, I don't measure up. We need to read them with this reality that God is calling us as believers, summoning us, wooing us to live out what he says is already true of us in Christ. It is really the New Testament vision of how you and I are to live and to mature spiritually. And I want you to know even when I say that, okay, I'm going to get down and dirty with you here. I know about you because I know about me. And I know about you and you because I've had thousands of conversations. I know some of you come from backgrounds with horrific stories where the people who loved you most said the most unbelievable ungodly and demonic things they could ever say about you, about your performance and what their opinion was of you. I know there's some tapes running through your head that says, if people really knew me, 
They really knew the real me. I know some of you say to yourself in your private moments, what is wrong with me? I know the world is like an avalanche megaphone that screams to you, you're not good enough, you don't measure up, and you know in some ways they're right. (laughs) We're not good enough, and we don't measure up. I know there's some of you who are haunted by the things you have done and thought and wanted to do. All those things are true of me. So what would I tell you? I would tell you that finding, believing, living, applying your identity in Christ, here's what it looks like. Some of you aren't going to like this because this is not your disposition, but it needs, your disposition needs to change. It looks like a spiritual, bare-knuckled street fight that lasts forever. There is no bell. (laughs) There is no corner to go to. You must swing and claw your way through all the lies and destroy the idols of your heart and proclaim over and over and over in a zillion times the truth about who God says you are in Christ. That's the only way to win this one. It is a spiritual fight that is done on our knees. It is a spiritual fight where the scriptures are open and your hearts are crying out to God. It comes from a devotional life that is robust and consistent. It will come no other way. If you try to change and find your identity, instead of coming from how you perform and what others think of you, etc., If you try to do that without this bare-knuckle street fight, and you do it in this sort of, the way most Christians sort of walk around life is, you know, up here in the clouds, sort of fuzzy fog. It's like, somebody said, does God love you? You say, yeah, he loves me, and I'm good with Jesus, and Jesus is my buddy. And if that's the way you're going about it, forget it. That's why I put all these in Christ verses and statements on the back of your list. It's why we are recommending you read the book Search for Significance. And here's the end result. I got to give you good news here. The end result is you will, I will guarantee you will grow spiritually and mature in Christ and become more like the beloved son. John Piper says, God will be most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Your life will change. God will be glorified because you are now getting your satisfaction, worth, significance, security from what God says is true about you. He said, Jeff, how do you know? There's a long story here. I'll make it short. When I was with Athletes in Action, they asked me to put together a series of messages for college and pro athletes called the Biblical Principles for Athletic Motivation. I stumbled. I had a clean slate. I was not theologically trained. 
And God, in his grace, gave me this somehow, I don't even remember where I got it from, this classic search for significance. Been in print 50 years. How many of you know books still in print 50 years? They're not in print five months. And I remember at a borrowed beach house with Jen and I, before we had kids, sitting down reading that book and tears running off my face. I thought, no one told me this. No one, I did. that's not what I heard growing up. That's not what I thought about myself. That certainly wasn't why I was playing football to get my dad to say, attaboy. Like the weight, the exhausting, crushing weight came off. And I've been in a street fight ever since. I challenge you to that fight. Lastly, take delight. In honoring each other, as Romans 12.10 says. Here's the reality. If you're like me, I want to give you freedom to normalize the struggle. And that is, if it weren't for people, I'd be fine, wouldn't you? <laughs> so there's a place for that. I get it. Golly, I can't believe so-and-so did that. You know, we're just talking. But the reality is, the scripture is so clear. Every person, no matter how marred, how defaced, uh, how broken. I saw a video clip this morning on Twitter. Somebody walking down the streets of Philadelphia. Hundreds of people just stoned out of their mind. Our world would say they're not worthy. But God says because they have the imprint of the very image of God. Man, that's hard for me to apply. I don't know about you. But that's a great takeaway. Matter of fact, Romans 12, 10 says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Rarely does the scripture talk about us competing with each other. It talks about us completing each other. But here it says, compete with each other. Outdo each other to show honor to others. Man, what a, what a great, great culture for us to, 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 to live out here. Just honor one another, right? Realize people are in different places in their journeys. We honor the story of what God's doing in their life, although they're still, they're, they're way behind us on the spiritual river, Right? We ask questions about them. We believe the best. We come alongside them. This culture, this gospel culture that we create here will change us in such a way that we're able to take it out there. Everyone is on the search, and we have the answers. But our answers don't matter until we really believe it and live it and apply it. So I want you to Take a minute this morning. In light of all that I've said, man, there's a lot there. It's a summary. We, Monty and I were talking. We could do a year series just on our identity in Christ, but we'll choose to do two weeks. Um, but I want you to take a minute and just, man, just say, Lord, what do you want me to hear this morning? How am I trying to find my worth and value from horizontal things? What's my next step in really believing what you say is true of me in Christ? Take a minute to ask the question, so what?
us pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you and uh, and as a people have been blood-bought and all the things you declare are true of us, I pray that we would we would we would fight and claw and go after really sinking those things down in our souls. Give us the ability to erase old tapes and replace them with new. When we fail, not if we fail, give us the ability to say, I did it, I need help, because our foundation never changes. Who we are in Christ never changes. There's security there. There's safety there. I pray even after today that we would uh, we would be able to have conversations with others in the room about this, that man, we could help a brother or sister uh, in some ways talk them off the cliff as they are shaming themselves and beating themselves up and hiding, that we can say, no, we, we, me too. Lord, help us to be the audible voice of you and your scriptures about what's true of us in Christ to each other. We love you. We're grateful for your word. It is so, so, so beautiful. And we ask that in Christ's name. And everyone said, amen.